Good morning. This morning we continue our series, I Believe. We're looking into a portion of a statement of faith that Christians have held to for thousands of years, the Apostles' Creed. And each week we look into what we say we believe in that creed, and then we discuss it from the point of view of the Bible. And the Bible opens our eyes to, to, to inform us better about what we're saying in that creed. First week, we looked at, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and we asked the question, how can we call God Almighty when we see um, tragedy happening around us, when there's terrorist attacks, when people are, uh, police officers are being shot in Dallas, um, when there's tragedy. And if you haven't heard that sermon, I encourage you to go to www.holyword.net and find it um, if you would like to start with us on the series. This week, we're looking at the second part of God the Father, what we say. We say, I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth. And in today's world, in 21st century North America and much of Europe, um, this particular Christian belief has been undermined completely by secularism and humanism, and it has changed um, the atmosphere of the world that we live in so that we, when we say, I believe that God created the heavens and the earth, are a minority almost among the schools that we go to, the places that we work, and the way that we apply that our faith. God's Word says something about the beginning, and it's important that we understand what we believe so that we have an answer for those people that have questions about our faith, and that we can grow in our faith too. The year was 15, uh, rather 1859. A 34-year-old French acrobat came to America, the Canadian-American border, and um, his name was Charles Blondin, and he wanted to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. There, if you ever saw a confident French acrobat, that's the picture of one right there. Um, the crowds gathered at the American and the Canadian side. Uh, he put out the rope, 1,300 feet, only two inches in diameter, made of hemp, the only thing keeping him from falling and hitting those falls. The rumors spread about this great feat that was about to happen. Crowds gathered. Gamblers took bets. Smart money it was on that he wouldn't make it across. The story goes he steps out onto the tightrope, and women faint, and kids are clinging to the knees of their father. He takes a couple steps in. About a third of the way across, he stops, sits down on the rope, takes a string out of his pocket, and lowers it down to the maid of the mist, tourist boat beneath him, calling for a bottle of wine. <laughs> they tie it up, he brings it back up to him, and after he gets a refreshment, he gets back up on his feet, and he continues on that rope all the way to the other side. He starts to sprint onto the Canadian side, and people are cheering and clapping and roaring. They were so amazed that he could cross Niagara Falls on that little rope. He wasn't finished that day. The story goes is that 20 minutes later, he strapped an old-fashioned camera and tripod to his back, got back on that rope, and started to walk across the falls back to the American side, stopping about 300 feet in. He set up that camera right there on that tightrope, and he snapped a picture of the American side. He was a visionary. He knew 150 years before that we would love selfies. And then he put that camera back on his back, and he continued to the other side. After 20 minutes, he made it there. And they applauded, and they roared, and they loved it, so much so that they called for encore performances and boy, did he do encore performances. Charles Blondin did blindfolded performances. He did performances where he did cartwheels and somersaults. He did performances where he stood on chairs. And his most famous performance 
was when he strapped an oven to his back and put utensils in it and walked halfway across the falls, set up the oven, cooked, made a fire, cooked an omelet, and then lowered it down to the people on the Maid of the Mist beneath him. Uh, he was amazing. This guy was an awesome acrobat, and there you see a couple of the depictions of him doing his tricks. One of the neatest things about his story, and I like to use this one pretty often, is before he got onto the rope, he would gather the crowd in front of him, and he would get them riled up. He was a showman, of course. He would say, who of you think that I can cross the falls on this tightrope? And everybody would cheer, yeah! And then he said, who of you think that I can cross these falls on this tightrope with somebody on my back? And everybody would cheer, yeah! And then his last question would be, who of you want to cross the falls on my back? (laughs) Crickets. Not once did he ever get a taker to cross on his back from the crowd. He did, and uh, there's pictures of this too. He did take his manager across on his back once, and that is true. There's a little picture of that happening. Who of you will cross on my back? It's a statement of faith, really. Um, Faith can be a lot of things. Faith is a statement, like the Apostles' Creed. I say, what's your faith? And you say, I'm a Christian. Tell me about it. You can rattle off the Apostles' Creed. That's a statement of faith. Faith can be a personal faith. You can believe or say that you believe something, but then I ask you, well, what's at the core of your faith? And you say, well, I believe that Jesus died on the cross to take away my sins and atone for me so that I can have eternal life. That would be a personal faith that you have in your heart that's a saving faith. The writer to the Hebrews recognizes a saving faith and a statement of faith, but he wants us to think along the lines of what Charles Blondin was asking his people. God comes to us and he says, do you believe that I can cross Niagara Falls? Yes, God, of course. Do you believe that I can cross with somebody on my back? Yes, God, you've done it in the past. Look at all these stories in the Bible, Hebrews 11. Do you believe that I can carry you across on my back? Faith is a personal, undivided confidence in God. Faith is a personal, undivided confidence in God. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. When I say blind faith is always guided by God's promises, I don't mean a blind faith that has um, nothing as its object or jumping into uh, a, a stupid situation. That's how we use blind faith today. Like, well, she's just going into that marriage. She has no idea about him, and she has no idea about the circumstances. She's going in on blind faith. Or, um, uh, I'm betting this season that the Longhorns are going to win the Big 12 and then the national championship. That's blind faith, depending on the record, no offense, John, of the team the year before. I'm just saying that would be a huge leap of blind faith with no promise or guarantee. Um, Blind faith isn't used that way in Scripture. When I'm talking about blind faith and confidence in something I can't see, Blind faith is always connected with God's promises. In other words, God makes his promise. He makes it clear. And that's what we can walk on. When he says, do you believe that you can cross Niagara Falls on my back? And you say, yes. He, he has already promised you that he will cross the falls. And when he says in his word, do you believe that I created the world? And you weren't there, and you never saw it. Do you believe that I have a certain uh, role for you in this world that I made from creation? And do you believe that I, I made this world for you to live this way in my creation? 
we jump on his back and we say, yes, because you've made promises. So blind faith is based on God's promises, and there's promises all throughout Hebrews chapter 11. Um, if you'd like to, turn to Hebrews 11 in your app or uh, in your pew Bible. I'm going to run through just a couple of the people who live by faith in God's promises. Um, if, once you get there, look at a couple of these people. I'm not going to go through all of them. We're going to go pretty quickly through them. Abel is in verse 4, Hebrews chapter 11. The famous account of Cain and Abel is found in Genesis 4, but that retells us of the faith of Abel. And here in, in, in Hebrews 11, it says that Abel lived by faith and he sacrificed by faith. Abel uh, took his very best animal from his herd, whether that was a sheep or a goat or whatever it was. It was, the, it was perhaps even the breeding sheep or the breeding goat in his herd, the best one, the cream of the crop, the one that could have made a lot of money probably or whatever they traded back then. The, the main animal that he took, he put it on an altar and he sacrificed it to God. He just burnt it up. It's like taking your jaguar and just burning it up for God. <laughs> Why did he do that? That's, that's, that's crazy. What did, he, what did he do that for? Well, he did it, the Bible says, because he was worshiping God. In other words, he believed that God was his all in all and that he could, on God's promise, that God would be his all in all and his Savior, give a sacrifice like that sheep. Um, keep on going if you're following along in Hebrews 11. Look at verse 7. Noah. Hebrews 11:7 says, By faith Noah, when warned about things yet, uh, not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. And the famous Christian commentary goes like this. Whoa, look at Noah. What a hero of faith. He, he, he built this boat in the middle of the desert. And there wasn't any water around, and, there wa- and there were all these people were doubting him, and there, there wasn't any rain for all this time, and he was still building this boat, putting all of his resources into it, and that's true. That was a tremendous leap of faith. But did you hear in Hebrews 11 that his faith was guided by God's promises in two ways? Number one, he believed that the destruction was coming. That's what it said. In other words, God promised that there would be a destruction. And number two, he believed God would save his family through a ark. And that's why he built a big boat in the middle of the desert. His faith was justified because of the promise that God made at the center of it, that he wanted to save his family. Um, They keep on going through Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, After Noah, you see Abraham. He's mentioned a couple of times. It says that he lived in tents his whole life, resting on God's promise that God would someday provide him a city to dwell in with a firm foundation whose architect was God himself. And so did his children, his children's children. They depended on a promise. And they lived in tents their whole life by faith in God's promise that they would give them an eternal land or, or, or a homeland and a, and a nation. And then Moses, I thought this one was interesting. Look at this passage from Hebrews eleven twenty four to 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with those with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. In other words, Moses could go forward in faith and give up life in Martha's vineyard, life in the Hamptons, and become homeless by faith that God was giving him a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, And Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, these are all leaders that are mentioned. They had legislation They had places that God asked them to take the people that the people weren't comfortable with, but they were out ahead of the people, walking by blind faith 
in God's promises that God told them what they would do was right. So this is the context of what we're talking about when we talk about faith in something that we do not see, including creation. So what about me? You ask, well, God, you had all of these great and these wonderful promises for Abraham and for uh, Gideon and Samson and Moses and Abel, all of these heroes of faith. Give me something. What do I put my faith on and in so that I can follow you and believe your promises, even the promise that Genesis 1 to 3 is how the world started? The answer to that is a faith question. All of these people that were mentioned in the heroes of faith, do you notice that none of them are alive today? Noah's boat is being eaten by termites if it's not gone already. David's kingdom, he's not on that throne any longer. He has a tomb. He's in the ground. The family, the land, the inheritance for Abraham and for Moses, the land flowing with milk and honey today, do you know what ha- what's happening in that land today? Bloodshed, tears. The point that God is getting us to here about faith is that all those people that put their faith in God also had a flaw at their very core. All of them were sinners. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's why every one of them has passed away because they never followed God perfectly enough. Abraham didn't. In fact, for as many times as he was faithful, as many great stories of faith that he has, he has just as many stories, if not more, about times that he dropped the ball. As many times as we think David was a great king, Do you remember that he is a murderer and that David, too, was an adulterer and that he fell far short of God's glory and even his dynasty and his kingdom is gone? And so God is calling here in these verses us to a greater promise and a greater kingdom and a greater promised land. And that happens in the person of Jesus Christ. But first, look in Hebrews. I have it printed out on page 8. Look at verse 39 and 40. These were all commended for their faith, speaking of the heroes of faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. In other words, what God is saying, yeah, you might not have the promise of a boat. You might not have the promise of a, uh, of a land flowing with milk and honey. But do you know that everybody gathered here, all Christians, all believers in me, have a better promise? That as far as you've fallen and the heroes of faith has fallen. And trust me, if you haven't been who God created you to be as a father or as a mother or as a son or a daughter, if you haven't loved your neighbor as yourself like he's asked you to do, to jump on his back and follow his way, then you do fall short too with all of these heroes of faith. God says this in his scripture, I gave you my son. Jesus is the one who died by faith in God's better plans for his world. When God saw us, he said, I'm sending my son and my son's going to jump on my back every time that I ask him to. And that when I cross Niagara Falls, that he's going to be there with me and that he's going to depend on my way and my will. Why? Because God's will is this, that no one perish but that all come to an understanding of the truth and eternal life. And so Jesus, in every way that we failed, he lived a perfect, faithful life. The most famous, um, uh, I guess, picture of this is in Luke chapter 11, or Luke 22. There Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's about to take on the sins of the whole world. And he knows the pain that he's about to go through. So he prays to God the Father, and he says, Father, if it's your will, let this cup be taken from me. But your will be done, he says. 
Do you see how he jumps on God's back? He sees God's world God's way. And God's world is that he wants all people to be saved. And the same Savior that went to the cross, put out his hands, and died, and said, It is finished! Is the same Savior that was there at the very beginning of time and said, Let there be light. And until you can get to that Savior on the cross, you cannot understand or believe that God created the world just like he said he did in Genesis 1-3. to It was here at the cross where he won your trust so that every word that he spoke to you about the creation and every word that he spoke to you about how he wants you to apply the creation is true. Um, Jesus died by faith in God's better plan, and that is what leads into verse 3. Notice that this verse 3 goes with the first two verses, and, and it's the first thought, really, after the definition of faith. The writer of the Hebrews is probably dealing with a very common problem that they had back then and we have today, and that's unbelief in the creation. Um, We aren't in this world alone, and we weren't the first to go through a secular or a humanistic worldview and live in it. Um, These Hebrews could be living in it very well. It says, verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Blind faith sees God's world his way. The first thing um, that I wanted to take out of this verse right here is this. Notice the first one, two, three, four words. By faith we understand. When I'm in school next year, when I'm going to my job next week, when I'm going into the society that is hostile to God and can't understand that I believe in a creation, I go back to these words, and I'm not going to hold them to the expectation to automatically just agree with me about the way that the world was created. Why? Because of those first four words. By faith, we understand. When I do have conversations with people with a different secularist worldview about the beginning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start right here. (laughs) Because this is the only place where God says, I'm winning your trust when I gave my life for you. To tell them about their Savior who said it is finished so that they have faith to understand where I'm coming from. Um, Number one, three considerations about the beginning. And this is true for all of us. If you're living in the same world as me, then then you know that there's hostility to the creation account. And so there's three takeaways that you can have here. Number one, none of us were there. Uh, So when I'm in a conversation with somebody else and they say, well, you can't know how it all started, I'm going to say I can't know how it all started. You know why? Because I'm not an eyewitness. But neither are you. You're not an eyewitness either. None of us are. None of us are eyewitnesses. I'm not going to come into a conversation thinking that I am an eyewitness of what happened. But there is an eyewitness who claims to be an eyewitness from the very beginning. And he wrote it down in the Hebrew Scriptures in Genesis chapter 1 to 3, which has been credible for thousands and thousands of years and accepted. And that same person that wrote those words was the same one that died for my sins. Um, whether you're a believer or whether you're not a believer, you have to understand that um, to, for the scientific method actually to take place, there's one important thing. I learned this in seventh grade when I did my project for my science fair. That you have to, in order for the project to be complete, you have to observe it, right? You have to see it happen. You have to see the golf ball get dissolved by the can of Coke in two days, or whatever it is that you're doing. You have to observe it for it to be science. Nobody, nobody here today was there at the very beginning. But 
God says, I was there at the very beginning, and this is the way that it happened. And you can read it in Genesis 1 to 3, written as an eyewitness account and accepted that way for thousands of years. Okay, number two. Someone or something had to call matter into existence. Look at verse 3 again, the second part especially. So that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. He's saying here that non-matter had to be called into matter. In other words, it took a supernatural being called God to call something that wasn't into something that was. And I don't believe that that's too far of a stretch for people to believe because I've heard some pretty interesting observations or, or theories about the beginning of the world. In fact, in an interview in 2008, uh, Richard Dawkins, a famous Darwinist and evolutionist, just a very popular writer, when he was asked about how it all began, he had to admit that something can't just come out of nothing. Um, in other words, life couldn't just appear. Uh, and so the closest answer that he had to how it all started or what kicked it all off, and obviously he believes in how that continued, but how it all got kicked off, he said that we had to have been put here by some higher intelligence from outside our universe, which in itself had to come by a Darwinian means, Okay. So what he's saying is that we have to have been put here. And, and this is an interesting one, too. If you know who Elon Musk is, he's the CEO of SpaceX and Tesla. Just last month in an interview in June, early June 2016, he said that there's one in a billion chance that we are not living in base reality. In other words, he believes, because of the observations that he makes, that we cannot have been just put here randomly or evolved randomly. But he believes in short, that we're being put here by super scientists and our brains are living in a pool of muck, kind of like the movie Matrix. I don't know why, but that's what they believe. They believe these things. What the Bible says is this, that there is a creator who called us from nothing to something. And so it's not such a far leap for the world around us to look at what we believe and to say that that, that's as credible as any other guess. But our guess is not even a guess. It's what God says in, the, in his word, what is true, that he called something out of nothing. So number one, we were not there, but we have a reliable eyewitness. Number two, something or someone had to call matter into existence. And number three, Jesus believed and applied the historical creation account as described in Genesis 1 to 3. If you think that today is the first time that Christians or believers have ever had to, to talk about the definition of marriage, it's not. Jesus was challenged by his um, opponents at two places in Scripture that we know of about the definition of marriage and the application of that definition of marriage. And do you know where Jesus went when he was challenged about it? He didn't get philosophical. He didn't get scientific. He went right back to Genesis 1-3. to And he said, Don't you know that in the beginning God created them male and female? In other words, Jesus believes in the historical account of Genesis 1. And the same man that put his arms out and forgave your sins on the cross is the same one who applied that principle to his people at his time. That is the easy part, is believing that Jesus created the world. The Spirit creates that in your heart by faith. When he brought you to faith in your baptism, when he called you to faith by his word, and he made your heart believe everything in scripture to be true including the creation the tough part my friends is living under that creation in God's world remember what I said before God wants you not just to believe that he created his world his way but he wants you to see his world his way and to live it out that way
So here are a couple of ways how God is calling us to finally live out the calling in the world that he created. How is he calling you to live by faith in his world today and in his word today? When I believe in the creation account, I believe in his definition of marriage. In other words, when God created man, men, husbands out there, he created you. He created you to be a leader in your home, in your community, and in your church. He created you to love your wife, not boss your wife. He created you to communicate with your family and do what's best for them. He created you to lay down your life for them, just like Christ laid down his life for the church. Do you see how it's one thing to believe in the creation and then another thing to apply it? It's fun, though, when you believe in the creation. Women and wives, when you were created, did you know that you were made to be the perfect fit for man and that you are his strength at home, in the community, as a friend, as a companion, and that he created you that way and that he wants you to be that way in the relationships that he gives you? Um, So the first thing, think about that creation in your marriage. If he's created you in this current circumstance to be single, that's what he's created you to be in this certain circumstance right now in this time. And the Bible says that he's created you to be the bride of Christ and that marriage is great, but it's not the ultimate. And that he's calling you to live by faith, a blind faith that lives by the creation that he makes. Okay, number two, sexuality. I don't know if you are living in the same world I am, but it seems like every time I turn on the TV or if I turn on the computer and I see a news story, almost everyone in popular media today self-identifies. I don't know if, you've ever, if you understand what I mean by that. People either self-identify or decline to self-identify with a sexual preference. And it's become such a big deal that actually it's the number one thing on many people's charts. Before you talk about life, before you talk about how you view the world, uh, you're known to that person by their sexual identity. In other words, sexual identity has gone into first place in identity and for many people. But if you take a look at creation and you look at how God created human beings, sexual identity is not the number one thing on the list. You know what the number one thing on the list is? How God wants you to view yourself and view other people? He made you the crown of his creation, it says. He made you above all things made in his image. It says, let us make man in our image. Let us make woman in our image. Let's make humankind in our image. You haven't been created to self-identify as a sexual being first. You've been made to self-identify as the crown of God's creation. Isn't that awesome? And so if I struggle in my singleness because I have a desire that I want to fulfill. I can run back to God and say, God, you created me first and foremost to be a crown of your creation. And I'm going to live underneath that grace and say no. If I struggle with inclinations that are not creation-made inclinations, whether I'm born with them or they come to me, I'm going to look rather at God's ultimate identity for me and not self-identify as anything less than God's chosen child of God that he redeemed on the cross And beneath that, in my categories, in my sexuality, I'm going to live that out the way that he's asking me to live that out. Creation is seeing God's world his way and living through his lenses. And finally, um, the third way that we live out God's creation in our lives is how has he blessed us with what he's given us. In the beginning, God created man. He created woman. And then he said, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. By faith, we can live 
under God's grace, whether we're family planning and we're wondering, can God provide for me if I have more children or can God provide for me if I have a child? We can say, yeah, he will because he told us to be fruitful and increase in number. It's a blessing and children are a blessing from God and he's going to take care of me. And he's going to provide for me. And he's given me all of this, these things on earth. He's given me money. He's given me, um, uh, he's given me employment. He's given me friends. He's given me a Christian community. Whatever he's given me, am I using those gifts, those talents, those abilities? Am I using those to serve myself? Or am I using those like the creation asks me to, to subdue the world and rule over it? In other words, to be good stewards of the things that God has given me. And when I know that Jesus is at the center of that world, I know where my talents where my abilities, where my money is going to be best used to bring his message and his gospel to the ends of the earth so that other people can see God's creation, his beautiful creation, through the same lens that I do. Um, In closing, just finally remember who it is that's calling you to walk by faith, who it is that is asking you to jump on his back. He's not a scientist. He's not a philosopher. He's God Almighty. He was there at the very beginning, and so he knows how it happened. He's an eyewitness. He's there today in your life through his Holy Spirit so that you can look at the creation to see how he wants you to see it and to apply it. And finally, to walk in faith wherever you are, at home, at work, in church, and outside of these walls, to live by faith and to believe in the things unseen. Amen.